Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Good morning, church. Well, this is the time in the service where usually we send our kiddos out to their classes down the hall, but every third Sunday of the month, they get to stay in here with us for big church. And so uh, they'll be in here this morning, and so there'll probably be a little more noise than you're used to in the room, and that'll be okay. Uh, we'll get through it together. Uh, but if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians, the book of Colossians in the New Testament. We started a brand new series this morning. Uh, working through the book of Colossians, and we'll be in it now uh, for the next several months together as we work our way passage by passage through this letter of the Apostle Paul's to the church at Colossae. And our text this morning uh, will be Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, so if you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there as we read together. The Apostle Paul starts this letter to the church at Colossae by writing, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is God's Word. You know, our nation has long been described here in America as a melting pot. And what they've, that, that language has been used to describe the way in which different nationalities, ethnicities have formed a national fabric. They've melted into a new way of being in the world, in our nation. Perhaps the first person to use this language lived back in the early 1900s uh, during the Roosevelt administration. And he went by the, went by the name, I, I guess his name was, uh, Israel Zangwill. Right, and he wrote a, a play entitled The Melting Pot, colon, The Great American Drama, that told the story of a Russian Jewish immigrant who experienced tragic loss in their homeland and moved here to the U.S. in search of a society which would be free from ethnic division and persecution due, due, due to religious or political uh, ideologies. And so they came to the U.S., uh, in, this, in this play, and he, the author of the play would write, he would say this, America is a crucible, the great melting pot where all the races of Europe are melting and reforming, Germans and Frenchmen, the Irish and English, Jews and Russians into this crucible. And that era of our nation's history is true that we were a nation of immigrants coming to the shores of the United States, into this melting pot. Yet in the 21st century, one thing has become abundantly clear, and that is that modern society here in America is not only a melting pot of different nationalities, a melting pot of different ethnicities, but also a blending of ideas, a blending of philosophies, a blending of theologies, it's in essence a blending of worldviews, of ways of seeing and being in the world. In 2018, the Pew Research Center released findings from a survey regarding what they called religious typologies, all right? So categories of different types of individuals within uh, the U.S. and their religious commitments. 
so there's, there are seven types, they say, of these religious flavors in the U.S. These typologies were as follows. I'll give them to you real quick. We're not going to spend much time on them this morning, but uh, we'll go from the bottom up. First of all, they had the solidly secular was a typology. These are the least religious of the seven groups. They're a relatively affluent, highly educated U.S. adults, mostly white and male. They tend to describe themselves as neither religious nor spiritual. In addition, they had the religion resistors. These were largely individuals who considered themselves spiritual, but not religious. And so they don't attend any kind of religious services and frown upon any kind of organized types of religion. You also have the spiritually awake. And these are individuals who would hold to at least some new age beliefs, like beliefs in psychics or spiritual energies. And they believe in God or some other higher power, though many do not believe in the God described or revealed in the Bible. And relatively few attend any kind of services or gather with any kind of community that share the similar beliefs. They also identified the relaxed religious. They believe in the God of the Bible. And four in ten of these individuals would say they pray on a daily basis, but relatively few attend any kind of services or read scripture. And nearly all of them say it's not necessary to believe in God in order to live an upstanding moral life. Third, you have, or or, I guess in their categories, we're moving from seven up to one. Third, the diversely devout This includes a relatively large share of what they describe as racial and ethnic minorities. They're very diverse as well in their beliefs. And it's the only group in which most people say they believe in the God described in the Bible. Uh, There's a high percentage of those individuals who would affirm that. Then second, they have the God and country believers. They're less active in church groups or other religious organizations, but they hold many traditional religious beliefs. And they tilt far to the right on social and political issues. And then finally, they have the, what they call the Sunday stalwarts. Right? These are the most religious of these seven groups. And they have high levels of involvement and engagement in their religious congregations. And they are engaged in actively living out and participating in their faith. So these are the seven categories they identify. But what I find most interesting and simultaneously concerning about this survey is the response to this statement in the survey to identify where they fell on this spectrum. But there was a statement that they asked them to respond to. And the statement is this, I believe there is spiritual energy located in physical things such as mountains and trees or crystals or rocks. In other words, a very new age understanding of the world, that God is in everything. Not just like Christians believe that God is everywhere, right? That he's omnipresent in all places at all times. But new age spiritualists believe that God is in everything, right? So he's in the tree, he's in the rock, he's in this crystal that I have on my mantle at home, right? That type of mentality, and in, in response to those categories, I'm sorry, in response to that statement, uh, there was a very uh, large percentage of individuals in the spiritually awake category, 99% in fact, who said, yes, I believe that God is in everything, not just everywhere. 98% of the religious resistors said they believe this as well. And we might expect as much from those individuals, but when it comes to the diversely devout who say they believe in the God of the Bible, 
who's revealed himself in Scripture, 95% of them said they believe God is in everything and not just everywhere. That he's in crystals, that he's in rocks, that he's in trees, that he's in mountains, that he's in the animals. And 29% of the Sunday stalwarts say they believe this as well. And so I share all this information with you, and you're maybe asking yourself this question, what in the world is he getting at, and what does it have to do with the book of Colossians? Right? Here it is. Let me give it to you as plainly as I can this morning. And it's this, that syncretism is a threat in every age. In every age. Now, some of you are racking your brain right now trying to understand what does he mean by syncretism. That's a big, like, quarter-sized word. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way and give you a definition at the same time. Whenever I was a kid, I can remember going to uh, various fast food restaurants, okay? And I remember every time we went to a fast food restaurant that had self-service fountain drinks, right? So the soda machine's on our side of the counter, okay? We would take a cup and we would put it under the ice dispenser and we would get some ice and then we would start on one side of the fountain drinks and we would work our way all the way down to the other side. And so we'd get a little bit of Coke and a little bit of Dr. Pepper and a little bit of root beer and a little bit of Sprite and a little bit of Fanta and a little bit of lemonade and whatever else they had to offer along that dispensary, right? We called it a soda suicide, Right? That was what it was called. My kids call it the same thing, so I think that I'm still trending well, okay? It was a soda suicide. Right, well, you took all the flavors and you mixed them together into one cup, okay? Now, I, can you imagine, listen, in our day and time, when you go into those restaurants that have like the computerized machine that has every fountain drink known to man, okay? Creating a suicide out of that thing. That would be interesting. All right, it would be something, all right? And so you go, and, and, and initially maybe you can pick up, you have one or two flavors you can kind of pick up. Maybe it's got a little bit of this and a little bit of this. But eventually when you put enough flavors together, it becomes something completely new and you really have no idea what you're tasting. That's what syncretism is. All right, it's the, it's, it's, it's the suicide of worldviews, so to speak. This blending of all these different ideologies and perspectives and theologies and understandings of the world together into one cup and then beginning to drink it. Uh, that's what syncretism is. So if you want a simple definition of syncretism, it's a soda suicide. Okay? And that's what's happening in modern society, in the modern church, in many places as well. Not just out there in the culture, but also within the church. And it's nothing new. It's nothing new because it was happening in Colossae as well. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church. See, the book of Colossians is a letter written by Paul to a church in Colossae in the early 60s AD. So some 25, 30 years after Jesus' ministry. It's most likely written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Now Colossae was, to understand a little bit about who Paul is writing to and where he's writing to, Colossae was a city in ancient Asia Minor. So think modern day Turkey. 
Right? As far as, and as far as we can tell, Paul was the grandfather of the church in Colossae. He was not the father of the church. He was the grandfather of the church because Epaphras apparently was the one who planted this church, who was a convert of Paul's ministry during his missionary stint in Ephesus. Epaphras went to Colossae to plant the church. So he's a convert of Paul's. He goes to Colossae, plants the church. So Paul's not the father of the church, but the grandfather, essentially. All right, he led Epaphras to Christ, discipled him, sent him into Colossae, Epaphras planted the church, and as far as we can tell, Paul never visited Colossae. But Epaphras solicits his help in addressing issues that were going on in Colossae with his apostolic authority to write to the church there in the city. Now, the city of Colossae was apparently one of the most important cities in its region during the 4th and 3rd centuries before Jesus, B.C., it was known as being a center of a thriving textile industry to the point that a certain kind of high-quality wool that was dyed a rich, dark red was known as Colossian wool. So it was a thriving econ- economic center. And its prominence as well was mostly due to the fact that it was situated along two major trade routes, one running east-west, right, from the coast inland, the other running north-south. So Colossae was at the intersection of these two major trade routes. And as you can imagine, as a very cosmopolitan city in the ancient world with lots of travelers moving in and through the city, many of which coming may have come to reside in the city as well, with a very predominant population of Gentiles, but also a substantial population of Jews, it was a very diverse city with lots of diverse opinions, viewpoints, philosophies, and ideologies that were operating there. And those apparently, from what we read in the book of Colossians, ended up mixing into a suicide, (laughs) into a particular flavor of drink that was, became something other than Christianity. And so the purpose of the letter that Paul writes then is to provide the resources for the Colossian Christians to fend off some kind of false teaching that's circulating there within the church to which they were or had been exposed. And so Paul writes this letter to hold up, and you'll, you'll see it all throughout the letter, hold up the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. That he is above all things. If I can illustrate it to you this way, Jesus is indeed king of the hill. I remember playing that game as a kid. I don't know if you played that game as a kid, but I remember playing that game as a kid. So anything that was taller than we were, right, we would climb up to the top and then everyone else is trying to pull you down because they want to be king of the hill. And the person who at the end of the game who was standing on top of the hill was the perennial reigning king, right? That's Jesus. He is king of the hill. He's supreme, but he's also sufficient. That you need nothing other than him. You don't need to add things to him. And that's essentially what was taking place in the church at Colossae as they were mixing their own flavor of suicide. Now, it would seem this false teaching and those who were advocates of it, they rose from within the church. They weren't invading from outside the church. Uh, They were coming up from within the church, being influenced by the winds of philosophy and ideologies that blew through the city. And there's been lots of debate among scholars with regards to the exact nature of what this false teaching was. 
But one thing is clear in the letter itself. In chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, Paul outlines a number of elements of the false teaching. He says, this is what characterizes it. I'll, I'll just run through them and we'll hit them in more, more detail when we get to them. But it's a hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition. It depends on elemental spiritual forces of the world. It does not rely on Christ. It requires Jewish holy days to be observed and restricts the eating of certain foods. It focuses attention on the worship and veneration of angelic beings. It highlights the visions of these false teachers and elevates them above apostolic teaching. It was full of proud, unspiritual minds puffed up with idle notions. And the teachers of this particular false teaching had lost their connection with the head of the body, who is Christ. That's why I say they weren't coming from outside, but rather inside. That one time it seemed they had this connection with Jesus, but they had lost it because they had diverted from him. It required various worldly rules to be implemented as the means for spiritual growth. And perhaps most of all, it claimed to offer a spiritual fullness that could not be found in Jesus alone. And as such, it was denigrating the person of Christ, implying that he was not supreme or that he was not sufficient. Now, one of the most recent treatments of this particular false teaching was written by a guy by the name of Clinton Arnold. He wrote a book called The Colossian Syncretism. I would rename it The Colossian Suicide, in which he puts forth what I think is perhaps the clearest understanding yet of what's happening in the church at Colossae. He says he believes that there's a mixture of the local, kind of regional folk uh, beliefs, local folk Judaism and Christianity. So you got this blending, this merging of regional beliefs, some lower level folk Judaism along with the Christian faith to make what we find here in the book of Colossians. And in response, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to uphold the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus as the inoculation or as the treatment for this false teaching. And over the next several months, as we work our way through the book of Colossians, in this letter, we want to see how Jesus is supreme and sufficient, not only in our doctrinal assertions, because listen, for many of us in the room, if I asked you the question, is Jesus supreme, true, false, you would circle true. If I asked you, is Jesus sufficient, true, false, you would circle true. But the question is, do you find Jesus to be supreme and sufficient in the realities of your everyday life? Not just on the doctrinal exam. That's what we want to see as we work our way through the book of Colossians. That fullness, spiritual fullness, is not to be found outside of Him. But it's to be found in Him. Pressing into Him. Learning from Him, following Him, worshiping Him. It's not to be found, it can be found only in Him. We don't need to add anything to Him. Because as soon as we try to add anything to Him, we end up taking away from Him. Right? Because you can't add anything to Him by, and not take something away from Him. Because to add something to Him means He's not enough. He's not enough. 
And this is a threat for us in our age because we live in a syncretistic world where the message we receive from many places is that we need Jesus and something else. Let me just give you three ways I think that fleshes itself out real quick. And and we'll perhaps unpack these more as we work through the book of Colossians together. But I thought this week of the Jesus plus particular political perspectives, Jesus plus particular philosophical perspectives, and Jesus plus particular theological perspectives. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you, like, or, or kind of press it like this. On the political spectrum, on, on one side, on the right, you have this suicide mixture of Jesus plus a hypervigilant Republican party, which in its most extreme forms turns into Christian nationalism. On the left... Right, You have the suicide mixture of Jesus plus the Democratic Party, which in its most extreme forms equals Christian socialism. So you've got these two extreme forms in the political arena where they say, yeah, Jesus is great, but we've got to have conservative politics or liberal politics. Right? You've got to add that to Jesus. Or in the philosophical world, you've got Jesus plus all the gender ideologies that are floating around the culture. Or you've got Jesus plus critical theory that's floating within levels of higher education. In the theological realm, you've got Jesus plus folk theology. Listen, in folk theology, it's not what's taught in academic institutions. It's not what you learn in seminary. It's not what they teach in Bible college. It's what the average person on the street really believes. That's what folk theology is. And folk theology gets expressed in statements like this. God helps those who... Help themselves, right? That's folk theology. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that teaching. While we are responsible moral beings and should make wise decisions, the consistent testimony of the Scripture is God helps those who can't help themselves. So folk theology, right? God helps those who help themselves, right? You didn't work hard enough. You didn't pull yourself up high enough by your bootstraps, right? That kind of mentality. Or live, this is prevalent right now, live your best life. Right? All over social media right now. Live your best life. Right? And, and that type of folk theology, whenever it comes into contact with the God of the Bible and the authority of Jesus or the supremacy of Jesus or the sufficiency of Jesus, when his authority or supremacy or sufficiency contradicts what your best life looks like to you, then you go with what you, your best life looks like. Right? And you go against the authority, the supremacy, or the sufficiency of Christ. Because those things are not a blessing to you, but they're a burden. They're holding you back from living your best life. Right? That's folk theology. And there is a mixture of those political ideologies, those philosophical perspectives, and folk theology, which is creating a modern-day suicide within the church. Now, we could say much more about all these additions, And perhaps we will as we go forward. But I'd like to conclude this morning, right, by looking at the initial prescription the Apostle Paul gives in these two verses that we just read together. And I think it's embedded in the greeting that he gives to the church as he begins to talk to the church about how to live in a syncretistic world. Before Paul ever gives a command, before he ever issues a warning, I believe he embeds an understanding 
for the church of how they are to operate, how they are to live in a world with this syncretistic suicide. And I believe this is what he would say to the church, is that we ought to live as faithful saints. As faithful saints. Look, in verses 1 and 2, in this greeting that Paul extends, he first of all validates his credentials. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he tells us who he's writing to. Saints and faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae. He's writing to the saints and to faithful church members. Now these saints, listen, they're not an NFL franchise in the city of New Orleans. They are literally holy ones. Ones who have been set apart by God for God's purposes, for service to God, for fellowship with God. They are the holy ones of God marked off for himself. And then he describes them as faithful. And that word faithful, when it shows up in the New Testament, it describes the character of those who are dependable, trustworthy, and true, reliable. So listen, when Paul greets the church in Colossae, remember he's the grandfather of the church, right? He's greeting the church and he's, and he's saying to them, he greets them in such a way as to remind them of who they are. They are God's holy ones. They are the ones that God has set apart for himself. They indeed are saints. And then he expresses with all his apostolic authority a confidence that they will be faithful to Christ in the face of all these swirling winds of doctrine and practice. So before he ever issues a warning, before he ever clarifies doctrine, before he ever gives a command, he's reminding them of who they are and expressing confidence that they're going to hold fast to Jesus. That they're going to live as faithful saints. And in the rest of the letter, he's going to unfold what that looks like. And this morning, just a flyover, I want to give us a little perspective of what this might look like practically in our lives. See, in their, in their book, Good Faith, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, they outline what I believe to be a very helpful pattern for living as faithful saints in an age marked by syncretism. They write of a pattern that they call love plus believe plus live. Now, I would order that pattern just a little bit because I think everything flows downhill from doctrine, from downhill from what we believe. Right, so I reorder it to believe, live, love. And I believe each of these things show up in the book of Colossians and, and give us clarity of what it, for what it means to live as faithful saints. That first of all, that we believe truth. That we believe truth. See, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is at stake in the Colossian church. And so almost at the very outset of his letter, Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, lifts up this high Christology, this high theology of who Jesus is. And he says eight things about him. In fact, we're going to take three weeks to get through those eight things in this particular series. Because he says, 
Jesus is the definitive picture of God, the one who has authority over all creation, the agent, source, and goal of all creation. He sustains all things. He's the head of the church. He's first placed by virtue of his resurrection. He's the incarnate son of God. He's our only reconciler and peacemaker. That's what he says in those five verses. This very high view of who Jesus is, holding it up for the church at Colossae to say, believe the truth about who Jesus is. Let me ask you a question, church. Is there anything in what I've just outlined for you there that's diluted or negotiable in your understanding of who Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one, not most people, but no one comes to the Father but through Him? That the only way for Paul to say grace to you and peace from God our Father in verse 2 is because of Christ. It's the only way he can say that you are recipients of grace and peace from God. That he is our only reconciler and peacemaker as the one who was clothed in flesh. The very second person of the Trinity. See, if we're going to live in a syncretistic age, we must hold fast to and believe truth. But second of all, if we're going to live as faithful saints in a syncretistic age, we must also live well. Live well. Later on in the book, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, Paul is going to move into the practical expression of what it looks like to live as a faithful saint. In Colossians chapter 3, he's going to talk about setting our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are below. He's going to talk about putting to death what is earthly in you. And he's going to go on to say what that is. And he says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, and division amongst ethnicities. And then he goes on further to say, put all those things off. Put them to death, in fact. He says, slay those things. And then he says this, put on as holy ones, as saints, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Let the peace of Christ reign and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory and his honor. That's what it looks like to live well. So you hold fast to truth and believe what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. Right? And reject those counterfeit doctrines that blow through the winds of the culture in this melting pot of ideas. You believe truth that you live well with purity and compassion Without covetousness, but with forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. Is there bitterness still echoing in your soul? Because of something someone said, something someone did. And a part of living well in a syncretistic age... That is extending forgiveness, bearing with one another, reconciling as God has reconciled us to himself. Fighting for church unity. 
in meekness and humility, considering others better than ourselves. That's what humility is. It's not thinking of your, of less of yourself and looking in the mirror saying, I'm just this good for nothing. Right? It's not poor self-esteem. But humility is thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. That's what true humility is. Are you living well? And then third, love well. Love well. In Colossians 3.14, Paul goes on to say, Above all these things, put on love, which binds them together. And I don't think what he's saying is this. I don't think he's saying, love's more important than all these things, so just all get along no matter the cost. I think what he's saying is this. The love is the glue that binds humility and meekness and compassion and kindness to the soul. That's how we forgive. It's an expression of love. It's how we bear with others as an expression of love. It's what patience is. Is an ex- it, patience is an expression of love. Not forcing everyone to believe like you or go home. Are you loving in humility? Are you loving by bearing and forgiving? It's an expression of all those things. It's the glue that holds it all together. And so if we're going to be faithful saints in the midst of a syncretistic age, Paul's going to say to us, we've got to believe truth. We've got to live well. We've got to love well. Let me ask you, are there any of those three areas in which you say, I need a course correction? There are certain things perhaps that have crept into my ways of understanding the world that are not found in the scriptures. There are certain ways of me living and interacting with other people that are more characteristic of those things that I ought to put to death rather than those things that I ought to put on. And maybe there's areas of our lives in which we're not loving others. We're really only loving ourselves. See, if we're to have a faithful witness as a church in a syncretistic age, it requires all three. Not just one. Not just two. Because you can have great doctrine and live a moral upstanding life and be a jerk. takes all three. See, syncretism is a threat in every age, including the one that we live in today. And we have to respond by believing, loving, and living. I look forward as we work our way through this little letter here in the New Testament, these four chapters of pressing more into those ideas. And seeing how Christ is supreme and sufficient, not only on our exams, but every day in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, help us, help us to see a clearer vision of your Son. Help us to grow in love for Him. As your Holy Spirit works to reveal and illumine more of who He is in our lives.
I pray that if there's any areas of our beliefs in which we have been drinking from multiple fountains, filling our cup with a mixture of perspectives and beliefs, I pray that you would help us I pray that you would help us to believe and hold fast to truth. Father, if there are any areas of our lives in which we have failed to put things to death that are destructive and corrosive, I pray that you help us to slay them today and tomorrow and the next, to put them off. And Father, wherever there are areas in our lives that we need to put on those virtues of grace, may we be vigilant to do so. And may all of that be bound together in our lives by love. Love for you. Love for your people. Love for the world that you have made that has fallen and broken. Help us over these next several months to find Jesus to be supreme and sufficient. He is is theologically the king of the hill. May he practically be so in our lives and in this church. We pray in his name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.